Hi, I'm Michael London, and welcome to Spidcast, the future of collaborative video production, brought to you by SpidVid.com. On this episode, we're visiting with John Gray and Melissa Jo Peltier. You've recently seen John's work as a producer on the TV series Ghost Whisperer and in TV movies such as Helter Skelter, Martin Lewis, and a lot more. Melissa's credits include executive producer with The Dog Whisperer and co-executive producer on My Big Fat Greek Wedding. They collaborated together on John's semi-autobiographical film White Irish Drinkers. I'm certain you'll enjoy their similar but quite unique stories as well. First up is John Gray. John, welcome to Spidcast. Well, thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about your story. Well, I was you know, very, very lucky to know uh, at a young age that this is what I wanted to do. I used to think I wanted to be an actor when I was a very young kid because I thought the actors kind of did it all. And then uh, it started to dawn on me as I made films with my, my uncle's Super 8 camera and, and uh, um, you know, got more involved in what it, what it takes to actually put a little movie together and tell a story. I realized that there was a, another sort of presence, you know, another, another brain uh, that, that was uh, behind the camera that, that was putting all this, all this stuff together. And, and I gave up the idea of being an actor, which I think is good news for the world. And uh, it really, really got committed to writing and directing, and, and you know, they both seemed to be one thing to me. And uh, I was very young when I made that commitment, and I was also very lucky in that I, I, you know, because I was so young and because I grew up in Brooklyn and knew no one, in the film business or television business, and, you know, no connections whatsoever. I had no idea how hard it was. <laughs> I really just had no idea how impossible uh, uh, trying to break into this business was. So I just kind of went on my way, just thinking this is what I'm going to do with my life, and uh, I'm going to make it happen. And, you know, it took about, I don't know, 12 years, I guess, before I could actually start making a living at it. But I you know, just was really persistent. I was always trying to make movies on my own, always... Uh, um, you know, trying to do low-budget stuff and, and writing all the time. And, uh, and ultimately, I got um, an opportunity to direct some educational films in Washington, D.C. that were they were dramatic films, but they were for classroom use, and that was a great experience. And then, to make a very long story short, uh, there was a script I had written um, that got me signed by an agent uh, out in L.A., and that sort of started my career in, in earnest. I was then able to uh, really make a living just writing and ultimately directing. And uh, I got, got started in, in uh, television with my, well, my first film was actually a feature, an independent feature. And then I started doing TV movies, which I really enjoyed because I was able to do really, um, I felt, you know, really interesting stories and you know, really had some great material to work with. And uh, uh, so that's sort of the really telescoped, <laughs> Reader's Digest version of how I got started. And John, you touched on something just a moment ago. If you had known just how difficult this business can be, would you have taken the same career path? You know, that's a great question, and that's a really great question. And that's something that I I, uh, I offer. It's one of the reasons why I think I'm so lucky that I didn't know, because maybe if someone sat me down and said, "Okay, you know, you're you're, you're 18, you're, you're going to be up to 30 by the time you can actually make a living doing this," uh, I don't know. Maybe I would have thought, "Well." You know, I don't want to do that. I don't know. I like to think that I was committed enough to not care, but, but uh, you know, in mind, I was going to success tomorrow. I'm going to get this next thing done tomorrow. Uh, you know, that, that's how I, the attitude I had all the way through. So, uh, 
I never sat down and went, wow, it's taking a really long time. Should I give up? You know, I just thought, it just made me more determined. You know, the, the more obstacles I found, uh, the more determined I got to do it. And, and then uh, you know, at a certain point, you get a little bit desperate, too, because you realize that uh, I didn't think I was suited for anything else in life, really, than to be a filmmaker. That was really what I felt I was here to do. So uh, that's a good question. I, I think uh, I'm glad I didn't have to answer it you know, for real. And tell us a bit about how creating content for television differs from content for the film world. Well, you know, I, I think the big difference is that um, you know, for TV, of course, uh, for broadcast television, you know, you're, you're trying to get that big, you know, wide audience. But at the same time, at least in terms of movies, not so much series, but in terms of movies, um, the subject matter you can tackle is so much more interesting than what you can usually do in the feature world. You know, I mean, I made movies about, you know, the first Civil War submarine. Uh, I did a movie about the partnership between Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Uh, you know, lots of, I did a, a movie about uh, Lincoln assassination. Uh, I was able to indulge a lot of my own personal fascinations um, by making movies about them for television, which, you know, in the feature world, you'd probably never get those movies made unless you had some megastar attached to them. But um, uh, that's why I, I always love working in, in television movies, particularly I, I did a lot of movies for TNT and for CBS. And uh, at that time, um, there are not very many made now, but at that time, uh, it was easier to get to do something a little bit different and, and really kind of you know, interesting. And, and I was able to do, each movie I did was, vastly different from the other you know in the feature world it's just it's really it's i found it difficult to try to anticipate what's commercial you know what isn't as a writer i'm more attracted to you know sort of character driven material and that's very difficult to do in the feature world and i I, you know i've made a few features and i hope to make more features but you know mostly i've tried to stay in that indie sort of sensibility where you're just sort of making what they would consider perhaps small movies, but but to me are very big movies about relationships and people and humanity and how we all <laughs> deal with each other. Hey, John, I'd like to hear about your most recent film, White Irish Drinkers. Take us through that. It was a script I had written about 10 years ago that I really, really wanted to make. And, uh, you know, it was a character piece. Uh, it was a very gritty, kind of violent look at growing up in Brooklyn. And uh, you could never get money raised to actually get it financed as a, as a feature. And so for about, you know, for those 10 years, I just kept revisiting it and trying to figure out how, how can I get this made. And, and a lot of people read the script in the business and liked the script. And in fact, uh, it got me a lot of work, uh, you know, the writing work. But no one really wanted to make it. Everyone just felt like, you know, it's, it's, just, it's character that's small. And, you know. So um, what, what happened during those 10 years then um, uh, really three things, I guess. You know, one is that the technology changed so drastically in those 10 years. And then also I was lucky enough to get a successful television series on CBS that lasted for five years. So I had some more financial resources than I'd, I'd ever had before. The other thing was that you know, I married Melissa, who was a really brilliant producer, and she kind of convinced me to not give up on, on this movie. And so we were sort of teamed up. And I realized that I could probably spend about $600,000 and make this movie digitally um, and, and call in a lot of favors from the people I've worked with for the past 20 years. And, and that's really how that came about. We shot it, uh, you know, for that 600000 we shot it in 17 days, all in uh, Brooklyn. And uh, we got a wonderful cast, Stephen Lang and Karen Allen and Peter Wiegert, and then some really exciting 
young actors, Nick Thurston and Jeff Wigdor and Leslie Murphy, you know, people who I think are going to be huge in the years to come. And it was just a wonderful experience. It was, it was great making a movie just as we wanted to make it. There was no studio. There was no network. It was just us. And um, the movie was released. Uh, we got a small release. We were out in about 25 cities. But that in itself is just is a miracle uh, these days with the climate that uh, the independent film is in. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's on DVD now and Blu-ray and Netflix and iTunes, and uh, it'll be on Showtime in uh, the fall. So it was a great experience. I mean, you know, we got the movie out there, and, and um, you know, it, it was uh, something I'm dying to do again. And we do hope that you get that opportunity again. And as you said, Ghost Whisperer allowed you the financing to make that film. Take us through a little bit of the story of Ghost Whisperer. You know, it, it was really interesting because I had never done a series before. In fact, I had never even pursued a series. It's this series, this, this opportunity just came to me because an executive I work with at CBS had wanted me to meet this woman uh, who, Ghost, who the Ghost Whisperer was based on. And uh, when I met this woman, I realized there was a way to maybe really do a series that for me would be really interesting, which was to meld horror with emotional, character-driven stories. And so that's kind of how I pitched it. And, uh, you know, I never, I mean, probably most people who, who get involved with series, you, know, you just never believe they're going to go. Um, and I wrote the pilot, and I figured out that would be the end of that. And then they said, well, you know, let's shoot it. Go ahead and shoot it. And I thought, well, okay, I've never directed a pilot. I'll see what that's like, and I'm sure that's as far as it'll go. And we made the pilot, and then they said, okay, um, why don't you do 13 of them? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I had to do this 13 more times. I don't even know if I could do it. And then ultimately they gave us a full-season pickup, and then ultimately we went on to do five years. And, and it was really interesting. I, mean, I loved a lot of it. I, I wrote many, many episodes, directed many, many episodes, and that was really fun because it was so fast. You get an idea for a show, um, and then two months later it's on the air, you know, uh, so in that respect, it was very heady, and we loved the cast, and the, you know, the crew was really like family to me. And uh, that part was really great. The part that that I, I enjoyed less was the kind of the showrunner aspect of it uh, for those first two seasons, where you know I was really kind of dealing with more administrative things and creative things. Uh, well, of course, running the writing, uh, um, you know, I guess was the biggest creative job. But it was dealing with the network and dealing with the studio and dealing with agents and dealing with physical production and and you know things that a producer does and things that I never aspire to do you know I just consider myself a writer director and that's really what I want to do so um, in that third season we brought in uh, PK Simmons to be the real showrunner so that I could sort of step back and pursue other things but also keep writing and directing for the series and that was a wonderful change for me and that's what ultimately allowed me to write some of the pilots and also to get white Irish drinkers off the ground. So you have gotten one of your uh, dream projects off the ground. You've had it made. You've had it distributed. But, John, if you were a 20-something just trying to break into the business, uh, what is the career path you would take? What advice do you have for the young filmmaker looking to get in? Well, I, I think the real advantage that, that young people starting out today have is, again, the digital possibilities of cinema. Uh, you know, when I wanted to make a movie, I had to do it either in Super 8 or as a kid or, uh, you know, 16 millimeter. Or, you know, it's a huge expense. But, I mean, now you see people making movies on their iPhones. And, you know, to me, that's really exciting. And that's what I would advise and I always advise everyone to do is get out there and make movies. Um, learn. Uh, you know, learn how to tell stories to the camera. Learn how to work with actors. Uh, and that's something I always emphasize because I feel like 
what's happening with, with young people, uh, young filmmakers today, is that they're so involved with the technical aspects of it, which are really fascinating and, and, and limitless. But I think what we're losing a little bit is you know, people being interested in storytelling and in creating performances with an actor and collaborating with an actor. And you know, a lot of times you'll see a director on a set these days and they just hide behind the monitor and they never talk to the actors. And that's, a, that's an art I think we're losing. And so that's something I always um, encourage uh, uh, young filmmakers to learn. You know, I, I encourage them to read, not just scripts, but you know, read the great novels, learn storytelling in the best possible way, see every movie you possibly can, and take acting classes. You know, learn what it's like to be an actor. Learn, you know, it doesn't matter if you suck as an actor, but you, know, you have to learn what it's like, what actors go through. Um, and be a friend to the actor. You know, don't be afraid of actors. Uh, uh, and, and that's, to me, that, those are the best things to do. And, and you know, it, it's a scary atmosphere today, as it, as it always is, because um, the business has contracted, and you know, there are a few movies being made, and there isn't any longer that incredible reservoir of television movies where you can go and cut your teeth and learn on but you know now i think you it just behooves any young filmmaker to go out there make your movie make it as great as you can learn from it make another one get it out on the internet get it on youtube uh get it seen and um you know just keep working uh, that way and just just you know, never rest just just keep going excellent advice john for the young filmmaker now as you said you've seen in your lifetime the whole process of filmmaking change completely let's go forward maybe to the year uh, 2021, uh, 10 years from now. What do you see? What will filmmaking look like then? You know, it's always hard to, I mean, it's hard to, hard to guess because who knows what's going to, what, what really, what the next development is around the corner. But, you know, based on the way, what I see now, you know, I think everyone will be experiencing, you know, movies through their computers uh, or certainly through, through the ether. You know, the, I think the idea of the DVDs, unfortunately, you know, all those the hardware is probably going to go away, and you know, I think that that movies are going to get, going to get easier and easier to make, uh, and easier and easier to see. And I don't know if that's going to devalue them or if that's going to make 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 them more valuable. You know, I'm not really sure how this all going to shake out. Uh, I think that what we're probably going to look at in the future, I believe, is that probably the only movies, big studio movies, that will get made in the future are big tentpole, you know, Planet of the Apes and you know, gigantic event movies. And I think the smaller movies, you know, like today, like The Help and movies like that, I think we're probably going to see more um, on demand or, or, you know, in, in, in delivery systems other than theaters because uh, I, I just find, I, I just believe that it's, it's not going to be cost-effective in the future to make those movies, market them, uh, you know, in, in theaters. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I really do, but that's kind of where I see it going. Now, there you make an excellent point, the accessibility, the ease of use, the quality of the equipment, but, right, it still comes down to the writing. Am I right on that? I, I think it does. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the things that last, the things that live on in people's memories, you know, the Godfathers, the, you know, the classic films, the Tennessee Williams movies, it, those, those all, it, it's all about the, the characters, the writing, and the storytelling. And, you know, the other... The other stuff is great too. I mean, the, and, and I love. I mean, I'm, I'm the first guy online to see you know the big effects movies. They just they'll just go away. I, they, they don't they won't live on in the history of film. Um, the way a movie that really you know look look at the movie Rocky, you know, couldn't be a simpler film. 
done for I don't know how much money, a million bucks maybe back in those days. Uh, yeah, people still reference Rocky. They still talk about it. They still, you know, and it was just a movie about people. And, and I think those are the kind of movies that live on. And I, I would hope that there are more people out there who want to make those kinds of movies, even though in the future they, they may not be as widely distributed as, as the bigger effects movies. But uh, yeah, we need those movies. And, and I think they're starting to you know, be eradicated a little bit by these big effects, you know, extravagances, which I think, you know, I'm not down on those. I love them. Um, I'm, I'm always there for them. But uh, you just don't want them th- that to be all there is. I am in agreement with you there, John. So tell us, what is next from John Gray? Well, I'm, I'm actually, right now, I'm in New Orleans. I'm directing a movie for TNT called Hyde, uh, which is a terrific thriller, uh, which I did not write. That Janet Brunel wrote it, based on a novel. And um, uh, I'm also, Melissa and I and my other producing partners uh, have another lower-budgeted thriller called Slander, which is about hate speech that we're trying to raise money for right now and trying to get some casting attached. It's another you know, movie we're hoping to make independently as a feature. And um, you know, I'm, I've written another TNT movie and, and basically just, um, you know, just trying to stay busy and keep it all going. Thank you, John Gray, for joining us today on Spidcast. Next up is writer, producer, director, Melissa Jo Peltier. Melissa continues to produce The Dog Whisperer and co-executive produced My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And as you just heard, she is a frequent professional collaborator with our previous guest and is also married to John Gray. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Happy to be here. Tell us about your story. How did you break into filmmaking? Well, I actually, my beginning in filmmaking was due to my father, who is now 90 and literally just retired from teaching. He was teaching at Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. And he uh, was at the time an audiovisual librarian, but, but a frustrated filmmaker. And he actually taught me how to edit film when I was nine. So I made my first movies when I was nine years old, eight years old. Um, I, was, I was doing plays when I was four. Um, I mean, he was basically taught me film theory before I knew what film theory was. And uh, that was just, you know, I was bitten by the bug that young, and I was just always a natural storyteller. So the way I got into the business, really, was um, I was I went to Pomona College in Claremont, California, which is a really wonderful school, and I was an um, English major there, but I, I uh, was also in theater there. And while I was a senior there, I got an internship on a documentary, and that sort of sent me down the documentary path, even though my goal had always been to do drama. Um, I got very addicted to doing documentaries. I got sort of caught up in the, in the excitement of being a fly on the wall and being in people's real lives and doing what I thought was making a difference, um, because I always had a little bit of that, that social justice side of me. So that was my beginning, um, and because our business is so varied and there's no direct, you know, one, two, three path you can take to do anything in it. I I definitely veered from that over the years, but that was definitely my start. So you say that you learned to edit from your dad. Do you mean you were actually cutting film stock or, or digitally? No, I was that was a long that was a long time ago. There was no digital then. I was editing Super Eight film on little teeny movieolas, you know, with glue, cutting it with glue. 
you know, I had small fingers, so it actually made it even easier because I was only nine. <laughs> what a great experience. It really was. I mean, I think one of the things that um, I learned early also from my dad, and but also my mother was a third-generation English major, and, and uh, there was a lot of reading in my family, a lot of reading and a lot of classic films and theater. And I think just the building blocks of storytelling, um, one of the things that excited me about documentaries was I had never thought about how the building blocks of, of fictional storytelling can be used in telling real-life stories. And uh, that was something that just thrilled me and took me off in that direction. And those are things I learned young, too. Well, fiction or nonfiction, you're still telling a story, so it always comes back to the writing. I think so. And, and one of the questions I know you wanted to ask me was advice to young filmmakers and, and wannabe filmmakers. And, and my, my main advice, I was thinking about this today, is to learn storytelling and uh, to learn it in, from the Greek tragedies, the real ones, <laughs> to uh, today, to, to the most avant-garde methods of storytelling today, and try to see the patterns, because no matter what, you can have the most original voice in the world, you can be the most imaginative person in the world, but you still are part of a tradition, and uh, you will fall somewhere along that line, even if you're pioneering a whole new genre. So I just recently read an article about how there's a lot of uh, people who want to become writers who don't think they should have to read, and they don't think they should have to read classics. And their argument is, well, you know, our voices are fresher that way. But the truth is, you're reinventing the wheel if you're doing that. Um, there's, there are one, also, I don't know why anyone wouldn't, want to experience the pleasure of reading and, and seeing classic films. I mean, that's just, to me, that's one of the natural highs of, of life. But I think learning the basics of storytelling is one of the most important things that any storyteller can do, whether you're going to be a cameraman and you're, you're just going to shoot. Um, you still want to learn storytelling, story beats, how stories unfold and how it's been done, and the many, many different ways it's been done over the years. Whether it's uh, a news story, or reality TV, or it's uh, an opera. It's the same basic principles of storytelling, and everything flows from there. So I can't recommend enough to young filmmakers to really study great things in every possible form, all the way back to the Greek plays. Excellent advice, Melissa. Now, you recently were involved in a project with a fantastic story, White Irish Drinkers. Tell us about that. White Irish Drinkers um, came about because my husband, John Gray, uh, had been, he'd been doing the Ghost Whisperer series, um, which he created for a number of years. And that went off the air, and he had written a couple pilots for um, network TV. And he's a really incredible writer. And the pilots got to that point where they were in the running. It was between his pilot and another pilot, and they went with the other pilot. And, he, and that happened twice in a row. And, you know, it's a good way to make a living. It definitely, you know, pays the bills. But he was getting frustrated about not being able to tell his own stories. So he pulled the script out of the drawer, and he said, you know, this is something I wanted to make for years. And is it any good? I don't know. And I read it, and I just said, I think this is the most honest thing you've written, and I think we should make it. And so we actually decided to throw our own money, it was really John's money from Ghost Whisper, in and, and make it and call in whatever favors we could. 
Uh, nobody worked free on it, but everybody worked pretty damn close. And to really get out there and make it. And for me, it was my first experience. I've actually been involved in independent films before, but it was my first experience um, really down and dirty on the ground making an independent film. And I had um, two other producers with me, Paul Bernard and Jim Scora. Jim was more the the guy watching the budget. Um, he was not on, on the set. And Paul was actually doing the, the um, first assistant director job on the set also. But really, between the two of us, we were putting out all the fires. And, and on a film that small, there's a lot of fires. But it taught me, first of all, that all my TV experience, learning how to be down and dirty and fast, actually pays off because we were able to do a, a feature film in 17 days and do it well. And I think the other thing that it taught me, well, in, in terms of filmmaking, was uh, it taught me about um, the honesty of, of, of a filmmaker's voice. And, and if you can stay connected to that, how it really comes out in every aspect of the film. I, I believe John's John was so connected to this film that it was infectious for the, the actors, the production designer, all of us. And everyone up to the, the last possible minute was, I mean, actors like Karen Allen and Stephen Lang were going out on their own with no, no money, nothing, just going out promoting this film because they believed in it so much. And I think, I think that's something that, that I took with me about um, the strength of your commitment to a project can really be infectious. So, you know, there's times when you do have to just do it for a living and phone it in, but when you're really passionate about something uh, and you get the right people behind you, you can you can really make miracles. Passion certainly is what draws many people into this business. What would you tell a young, passionate filmmaker about how to go about breaking into the business? You know, it's such, a, it's such a different time than when I started in the business. There's, the technology has changed so much. Um, I think that... Learning technology, modern technology right now is very important. Um, I think learning the building blocks of storytelling is very important. I think being flexible. Um, I think knowing what you want is important. But there's people out there who don't know exactly what they're going to do in this business and still can find that by working. You don't necessarily have to get an MFA to, to do that. You can get out there and get on the set and work and be a PA and work your way from the bottom and see what you really connect with. And that, that's something that was true when I was starting, and it's true now. But you'll have to find something that will make you stand out if that's going to be the way that you want to get in. You know, knowing your craft better. And once again, some of the basic rules of just being a good employee really apply in the business. There are a lot of people, and I, I've had this experience because I, I ran a company for 15 years. There's a lot of people who come out of school or film school who are very bright and have you know, been a big, big fish in a small pond, and they'll start out as somebody's assistant, and then they'll, three months later, will say, you know, when do I get a chance to produce? And it doesn't work like that. You still have to earn your way, just like in any field. So it's important to... Really work your butt off. You know, work hard. Have a great work ethic. Have a great attitude. Don't expect your dreams to come true tomorrow. Keep dreaming them and keep working toward them. But work hard, and people will notice your hard work and your good out attitude. There's no question, because 
it's still, even in our business, it's not that common by people starting out. People will notice it. So, what is next for Melissa Jo Peltier? Right now, um, I'm working on a couple writing projects, uh, book projects, but I'm also working on a film with my husband where we're another independent film that we're trying to raise money for. Um, it's being read by some actors right now, and actors reps rather. Um, can't name them right now, but, but we're hoping that um, we're going to get a, a pretty pretty important name to play this role. Of the name of the movie is Slander, and it's a, a small movie, but it's a really, really powerful story that John's written. And we want to put our whole team together that we had on White Irish Drinkers again because that was such a great experience for everybody who worked on it. And this time we'd have a little more money and maybe a few more days to shoot. But um, we're, everyone who worked on the film was like us. We just loved the process of filmmaking. So it doesn't matter that we don't have trailers and, and all the perks that you might have on a network television show because actually it's more fun to have less money. Once you've actually worked with money, it's sometimes a lot more fun to just do it the way that you did it when you were nine years old. Well, certainly things have changed since then, including what we're doing right now. Share with us your thoughts about SpitVid and what impact it has on future filmmakers. Well, I think what's exciting about it is that, um, and, and I like this about Twitter, which is how I found SpitVid, and uh, I like the fact that you can communicate with people who share your your goals and also some of your values and your taste who might be very far away from you. Um, and I think that that's a, an important aspect of the, the organization that you have, which is that, you know, people can reach out to others. They may have a vision that does not, nobody near them can connect to that vision. Uh, they may just not connect, but somebody 2,000 miles away might absolutely connect and might be the piece of the puzzle that they need to get it finished. So I think that's a really nice thing about today's technology. Everyone was more isolated starting out when, when I began. I mean, I remember writing letters, literally, you know, sitting down at the typewriter and typing letters to producers, trying to get meetings with them. And it's, it's much more possible now to reach out in other ways. So, uh, Networking is easier, and I think that if you use it right and in a discerning manner, I think that's a, a, a real advantage to new technology. Well, speaking of uh, networking, uh, how can folks get in touch with you and learn more about you? Well, I'm on IMDb, so if they want to see every, everything that I've done or pretty much everything since IMDb started. Um, I'm on Twitter at Melissa J. Peltier at Twitter. WhiteIrishDrinkersTheMovie.com is the website of our movie. Um, my television production company is called MPH Entertainment. MPHENT.com is our, our website. We've done a, a lot of nonfiction TV, including the show The Dog Whisperer, which we still do. That's probably the best way. Melissa Joe Peltier, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate talking to you. Thanks for listening to our SpidCast show. We appreciate your time and attention. You can now join the conversation at spidvid.com or on our SpidVid blog. And you can join our collaborative filmmaking community at spidvid.com. Tune in next month for another entertaining and informative episode of SpidCast. SpidCast. <laughs>